We're going to jump right into our study tonight. So make your way over to Ephesians chapter number five, if you would, please. And uh, some of you think it's, uh, it, we're going to come back to Ecclesiastes, but we're going to start in Ephesians chapter five. And uh, so I didn't mix those titles up or those book names up. Sometimes I do that, but that is on purpose. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter five, and then we're going to come back to Ecclesiastes chapter number five, okay? And so as you're making your way there, just a brief oversimplification uh, of the four chapters we have seen so far. And uh, again, these chapters, by and large, are fairly varied um, in the topics that they discuss. There's some big themes, um, but there's also multiple themes in some of the chapters. But if we could take away just one truth from each chapter, I'll give you just a heading for it. Chapter number one, we learned that nothing is defensible. And uh, we saw the illustration that Solomon used about how the the river loses its water to the ocean, and the ocean can't hold on to it. Uh, It loses it to the, the clouds and the clouds lose it to the rivers uh, and the rivers lose it to the ocean and really nothing can be kept and nothing can be changed about that reality. Uh, We live in a world that God designed the laws of and there's no escaping those laws. And uh, so uh, it doesn't matter how much you want to hold on to your life, doesn't matter how long you hope you can live. The fact of the matter is there's a cycle of life uh, that all of us are are, uh, put under uh, as Solomon says it. It's a sore travail that God hath exercised the sons of men with is the way that Solomon says which is a little bit of a Debbie Downer. Um, he, uh, he doesn't seem too terribly happy about that reality. But again, remember the sickness of soul uh, that Solomon is writing from. He's away from the Lord. Uh, chapter number two, uh, if I had to put a header on it, it would be the wild goose chase. And uh, chapter number two is that we kind of called it a menu where he just goes down the list of things that he hopes satisfies him. And uh, literally nothing on that list could make him happy. Uh, and there were some wild things on that list, right? Uh, manservants, gold, trees, planting. All just a varied uh, list of things that he attempted to find and fill the void of God with, and none of it made him happy. He even tried wisdom, folly, and madness, right? And we defined that. So that's chapter number two, the, uh, the wild goose chase, if you will. And chapter number three, uh, the primary theme was the idea that life is seasonal, and that seasonality is inescapable. Uh, you cannot escape the fact that summer's going to be hot, and you cannot escape the fact that winter's going to be cold. Uh, it's just how it works, and all of that works together for a a universal God-given purpose uh, in the seasons and then also in our lives as well. And then chapter number four, we saw this big character study uh, in, like I said, it's just my opinion that this is a character study of Solomon himself. He's this old and foolish king uh, who will no more be admonished. He will not be instructed. There's nobody there to help him. There's nobody there to correct him. There's nobody there to love him and show him where he's gone off. And we saw that at the very end of the chapter how he talks about uh, the one that's taken from prison and brought into the palace and yet uh, that, that, that man will have a son. Nobody will find favor in him. Uh, and really, it's, in my estimation, it seems very much a character study of his own life. Uh, this evening, we have another chapter where we sit at the table uh, with the life critic, Solomon. Uh, and like I said a moment ago, in my opinion, it's not nearly as heavy as last week. Uh, last week, it was, it was pretty heavy. There was some dark and hopelessness, darkness and hopelessness in the tone of Solomon as he told us that, listen, it's better to be dead. In fact, I envy the people who never were. Uh, than those who had to face the hardships of life. And again, we, we, we compared that to Paul's view of life, uh, that even, even in slavery, we can still glorify Jesus. And so uh, a very different paradigm that Solomon has away from God than you and I get uh, uh, in the presence of our Creator. And so uh, this chapter that we're getting into, uh, like I said, it's a little bit lighter, but it's also extremely profound. It is a powerful, powerful chapter. Uh, we're going to learn two primary things, and there's kind of a sub-thing under the first point. 
point, the first thing he's going to teach us is about approaching God and making sure that we, when we vow and we communicate with God, that we're not just being frivolous, okay? And that's, that's convicting to me already. Uh, when we get into the text, you're going to see that, man, it, it's a, we're all guilty of what we're about to read, okay? I, I, my assumption is we're all guilty of what he is about to tell us. Uh, uh, and, and, and there's some things we're going to learn that will help us maybe change in our hearts and our lives. And then the last half of the chapter, he's going to deal with how we as human beings relate to riches. And uh, so some great truth, and like I said, a nice break from just the sickness of soul. Uh, But if I had to give a title to the first half of the chapter, it would be what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse number 15. Uh, And this is a a thought or a word that we're going to reference a couple times this evening, so I wanted to start here. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15 says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And the word circumspectly just means this, mindful, deliberate, careful, decisional, on purpose, not haphazardly. And so Paul tells us in the New Testament, hey, in your walk, in your Christian walk, be mindful and deliberate in the things that you do and the way that you behave yourself. Now, again, Paul is speaking more in context of our outward walk. What Solomon is going to bring us to is this inner chamber where we speak with God and that we ought to walk circumspectly, mindfully, deliberately, carefully, and intentionally. And so uh, let's jump right into Ecclesiastes chapter number five. If you'll make your way over there, we'll start in and uh, get after some of these verses. And there's some really great things. I, if, you're, if you're not in the habit of taking notes, tonight would be a great time to start uh, because I really do think the principle Solomon is going to give us uh, really can revolutionize our relationship with God and our secret place with God, our prayer time with God, our Bible reading with God. It's, it's a powerful uh, set of, uh, it's an indictment, but it's also there's some set of instructions on how to maybe uh, do it a little bit better. So let's jump right in. Ecclesiastes chapter number five and verse number one. It'll take us a minute to get through the first verse. We're going to break it into smaller pieces. Look at verse number one. It says, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Now, keep thy foot is not anything that we would maybe use as a a, a figure of speech or a way of expression. uh, But we might say, hey, watch your step. Hey, pay attention to where you're stepping. And Solomon starts out this idea of, hey, watch how you walk when you come into, and he says, the house of God. We'll talk about that in a minute. The the general idea is when you come into the presence of God, you ought to walk circumspectly. Uh, Think about how Moses, this idea of your feet, Moses or Joshua in their experience with God, uh, Moses is told, hey, take the shoes off your feet. You're standing on holy ground. And so uh, uh, Solomon comes out here and he says, hey, listen, uh, when you come into the presence of your God, walk. Walk carefully. Walk circumspectly. Now, something important that I want to make sure that we bridge in our minds, uh, he's not just talking about the church. In fact, right here, he's not even talking about the church at all. He's talking about the temple. But in the Jewish mindset, and this isn't exclusive, uh, 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 exclusively true in every area, but in the Jewish mindset, when they would think of where is God, they would think, man, the temple. That is where he dwells in his, in his fullest capacity. And, and for the most part, that's relatively true in the Holy of Holies and so forth. Now, uh, again, for us, we recognize recognized by Jesus. That veil is torn. He doesn't just dwell in the baptistry of Faith Baptist Church. So when you walk into Faith Baptist Church, walk carefully because the presence of God is here. No, Christian, the presence of God is everywhere. And so again, Solomon is not just advocating for behaving in church. Uh, He is advocating for when you come into the very presence of God, when you choose to go before his throne, that might be at an altar here. That might be at your seat during the altar uh, time or the prayer time. That, That should be in your every single day as you're walking with God and praying with God and coming with that boldness before the throne of God. And he tells us first off to walk carefully into the presence of God. But let's keep reading in verse number one. It says, and be more ready to hear 
than to give the sacrifices of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Have you ever thought about this, that not every offering to God is acceptable to God? Would you go to Isaiah chapter 29? Keep your finger in Ecclesiastes. We'll certainly be back in a moment. But not everything offered to God or every word spoken to God or every prayer uh, thrown up haphazardly to God is something that God enjoys, entertains, or accepts. Now, we know God's going to show us here in a little bit that he hears everything we say. So sometimes we subject him to prayers that we're not even engaged in. He's hearing it more than we're hearing it. We're not even consciously engaged in that process. But here he's telling us that fools can stumble into the presence of God and just lay down something, and God says, no, 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 it would be better for you to speak less than to offer me this foolishness. Uh, And again, we're all guilty, I think, to one degree or another of going into the presence of God, maybe to offer, maybe maybe we start out with the best of intentions, right? All right, it's my time for prayer, and I'm going to start praying, and I'm going to start praising, and then I'm going to let my mouth keep moving, but my mind goes away. And we're offering something that is not engaged. And again, hold on. There's, there's plenty of illustrations Solomon's going to use. He's going to talk about how we dream and we're not conscious when we dream. And that's how we approach God sometimes. And so hold on to some of this. We're going to get to it in a minute. But oftentimes we can fumble into prayer and fumble out of prayer. And now we're fumbling back into prayer. And, you know, we're throwing up a couple of requests. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're, we're mind, our mind is wandering off to what we're going to do for lunch. And Isaiah captures this problem really well, um, how it happens in the human heart in Isaiah 29. Look at verse 20, uh, verse number 13. Isaiah 29, verse 13. It says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouths, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is, uh, uh, is taught by the precept of men. So sometimes we can come near to God and offer to him this sacrifice of fools. Our mouth is saying the right things, but our heart is not in it, or our heart is backslidden and away from God, and yet we're still offering the the sacrifices. I wish I had thought about it, it just came to mind, but uh, I believe it's in Isaiah. He talks about how God is not pleased with rivers of oil and streams of blood. You could sacrifice until it literally ran, and God is not pleased with those things. God requires obedience. And so this idea of offering this hollow, false prayer is what Solomon is going after. Uh, I I want us to understand this very, very uh, uh, carefully. There's a balance. Um, God isn't telling us don't come to his presence. Uh, He's just telling us to come carefully. God isn't telling us that he doesn't want us there. In fact, all of the New Testament points to the idea that you and I get to come boldly into his presence. And this isn't telling us not to come. It's telling us not to come unengaged. It's telling us to come deliberately and to come uh, intentionally. It's telling us to come and to pay attention to where we put our feet. Uh, And again, you'll see in a second, to watch the words you say. Uh, He is admonishing us not to be absent from the presence of God, but to be present when you're present in the presence of God. Now understand this, for us as Christians, Christian. I've said this before many times, but it bears repeating in this moment. Because of Jesus, you and I are now welcome into the presence of God. But sometimes we forget that we shouldn't be. We have a holy God who invites us to come with boldness into the throne room and to make our petitions known to him. And sometimes that boldness creates a a lackadaisical heart. 
Sometimes that access and that boldness creates an ingratitude in us where we wouldn't ever, if we sat down at lunch with the president of the United States, we wouldn't be on our phone or wandering off over here. We'd be fully engaged in the process. Uh, And yet we go into the very presence of God, which we should not be allowed into. From Adam to Jesus, we weren't, right? Think about the flaming swords and the angels. Think about the veil and the inner chamber that could only be reached once a year to offer blood. We were not allowed to come into the presence of God, but now we are. And he's given us boldness to do so, but boldness doesn't mean flippancy. Boldness doesn't mean arrogance. Boldness does not mean the sacrifice of fools from a hollow and unengaged heart. So let's, let's keep reading, and you'll start to see the words that I've referenced a couple times. Look at verse number two. He says, be not rash with thy mouth. Hey, you're coming into the presence of God. Watch your feet. Don't be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. And when you get here, don't speak Rashly. What does the word rash mean? It means hurried. It means quickly. Listen, God help our hearts with this. Again, sometimes I was thinking about this. When do we pray rash prayers? Oftentimes. Well, yep, that's what I thought of. God convicted my heart. Sometimes it's, all right, kids, let's pray real quick. Boom. And if you look at me like I'm the only one that's done that, I hope you've never done that. But I've done that. I've, I've prayed rash prayers that honestly God is saying, hey, don't do that. Don't offer this hollow, unengaged, almost like you're sleeping uh, kind of uh, 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 prayer to me. Now listen, I truly believe from in light of the rest of Scripture, God is okay with short prayers. I I truly believe there are times where Paul is on a boat and he just calls out to God. I I think he's good with that. I don't think he's calling for, you know, if you're not going to pray more than 15 minutes, don't pray. I don't think that's what he's advocating. He is advocating for coming with an engaged heart. And not just flippantly, speedily going through your prayer list so that you could get done in five minutes. I got it down to four and a half minutes this morning. I had more time for coffee and we're running through. No, don't be rash when you come into the presence of God. Verse number two, be not rash with thy mouth. And let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. Now listen, this is important. He isn't instructing us to say nothing. Rather, he is admonishing us away from saying anything. Does that make sense to you? He isn't saying, hey, when you come, don't say anything. Don't, say, don't, don't speak. Say nothing. What he's saying is don't come in and just start uttering all kinds of unengaged. Think about it like this. It's almost like turning the faucet on and then walking away from it. We put our prayers into autopilot. Now, this is really obviously seen in, in Bible time reading sometimes. It's a little easier, I think, to do it in, in Bible reading than it is sometimes prayer. But we, we do this in our Bible reading. We'll start reading, and then we're like nine verses later, and we have no idea what we just read. That's what he's talking about. But in our prayer time, where we put our mind on autopilot, we crack the faucet, we start praying, and Lord, you're so good, and then we just start our praise. We go through the motions of offering praise. But there's no heart of gratitude. We know what to say because we've done it so many times. Am I the only one guilty of that? We know how to say, God, thank you for the meal, and thank you for my family, and thank you for the goodness. We do that. And Solomon is just calling, which is so great because Solomon is in such a, a, a rough spot spiritually. He's saying, hey, if you're going to go to God, go with an engaged heart. Go with this idea of really leaning into being in the presence of God. Um, I want you to, I'm just going to read real quick uh, th- this, this idea out of Psalm 139. It says, for there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. So think about this. Oftentimes in our prayer time, what can happen is we're not engaged and we're, we're going through a list in our mind, and we're saying words, and we don't know what we said, but you know what the Bible just told us? God had to listen to every bit of that. Every bit of that. Now, imagine, ladies, it's your anniversary, and your husband comes home, and he's like, 
Okay, um, I'm supposed to say nice things to you, so sit, and I'll start. Uh, you are pretty, you are cool, you make good meals, uh, and he's watching the football game while saying these things to you. He is not bothered or inconvenienced whatsoever, but you have to sit there and listen to it. And when it comes to prayer, don't be hasty to offer to say anything before the Lord. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. And here's the last part of verse number two, and this is the most hefty to me. It says, for God is in heaven, he's holy, he's elevated, now upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. Now, let me capture verse two in a single sentence, okay? I think this will help. It would be better to say less words than to say empty words. That's what he's saying. He isn't advocating for not, not praying. He isn't advocating for, for you know, speaking fewer things. He is simply stating the heart of the text we've just read in verse 1 and 2 is that it would be better to say fewer things that you actually mean are engage, and, are, and are engaged with than to just hollow, empty, hollow, and distracted words. Say fewer things from an engaged heart as opposed to just cracking the faucet in your prayer time, letting your mouth keep moving while you're thinking about other things. Uh, again, a powerful admonishment, and I think it's something all of us can pay attention to in our own heart. And he's actually going to illustrate it extremely well. Um, look at verse number three. He says, For a dream cometh through the multitude of busyness, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of of words. Now, think about that. Be a, be a Bible student. What, what, what is he saying there? He says, for a dream cometh through the multitude of busyness. And that's, that's true. You're going through your day. You know, you saw this person. You did that thing. And then all of a sudden, you're, you, you take things out of your real life. And all of a sudden, you're dreaming about it. Uh, recently, I dreamed about Africa. I think that was last night. I also dreamed we got, we got bombed as a nation. Okay, so I don't know where that one came from. But through the busyness of the day, my brain, my mind began to, began to paint things of no substance, and my conscience was not involved in that process. I'm unconscious. So my mind continues to just move through the things I gathered from the day, but consciously I'm not even present. You see where that's going? He says that's what the words of a fool are to God. My, I'm just kind of throwing some things up there, but consciously I'm not even present. I, and he's going to use this same example later on in the text to talk about when we commit things to God. We're like, oh, it was kind of like a dream. I'm not really accountable for it. No, that's not how prayer time should be. We shouldn't just let our minds move and our mouth move while we're somewhere else entirely. That prayer and coming to the presence of God requires an active engagement mentally, consciously in coming into his presence. That's walking circumspectly, not uh, being haste, uh, hasty or rash with our mouth. That's careful, engaged. I'm not just letting my words kind of flow. So let's read verse 3 again so you see it. It says, For a dream cometh through the multitude of busyness, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. It's just moving. Just like a dream is incoherent, and it just jumps, you know, one minute you're, you know, hanging out at a beach, and the next minute you're, you know, skydiving off of a, you know, you know the Empire State Building. It's just completely incoherent. And that's what a fool's prayer and a fool's coming to God is like. That ought not be a description of ours. And so we ought to guard our minds and engage our minds when we come into the presence of God. And that's a very convicting thought. Let me give you just a quick warning. Prayer lists are tremendous things. But there's also a danger that you can mindlessly just get through it. 
You can get it down to a science. Uh, you, can, you can put your brain in autopilot like you can't maybe without a prayer list. I'm not advocating for or against them. I think they're tremendous. I think they have their place. But I think if this is something you're struggling with, this idea of engaging your mind, I think you ought to do that. Here's one thing that helps me when I find myself, and I, my brain is a bag of cats. You all know that, okay? Sometimes what I do is I'll actually set a chair across from me uh, in my office, and I will speak to the Lord like he's in the room because his presence is in the room. And that helps me engage my absolutely, you know, all over the place brain sometimes to focus it in a particular place and speak to the Lord. Uh, Again, I don't want to just let my mind move without my conscious effort. I don't want to be hasty with my words, and I don't want to make the sacrifice of fools. Let's continue into verse number four. Now, he is still very much so talking about hollowness of words, but he's going to gear into the idea of paying vows, uh, and we'll define that in just a second. I'm, I'm really excited about verse number four. Look what it says. When thou vowest a vow unto God... Defer not to pay it. Don't put it off. Don't ever not fulfill it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. All right, let's pack our bags. I want to teach you something I think is crucial to our understanding. Because at one point or another, we're all going to find ourselves in this boat. And I think it's important that we know how to handle this. Let me lay a couple of ground rules when it comes to our vows before God. Number one, we have nothing God needs. Okay? Nothing you possess, God needs. Now, sometimes, and again, I get it. I really try not to say it uh, uh, as much as possible. But sometimes we'll say something like, you know, God needs you to go to Arvin. God needs you. It's just not true. He doesn't need you to do anything. He'll call somebody else to do it. If Jeremiah wasn't going to do it, God could have called somebody else, right? So we have nothing that God needs. I'm trying to get us to why in the world we would make promises or negotiations with God. So, So hold on to that. Number one, we have nothing that God needs. Because of that, number two... Because we have nothing he needs, it is impossible for us to negotiate or barter with God. It is impossible. There is nothing you and I can say to God, okay, Lord, I'm in this hardship, we're in the ER, there's this circumstance going on, I have this one thing that I know you really, really, really need and want. If you'll do this for me, I'll do that for you. That's not a vow. When you Think about when we do weddings, right? We always say, A vow is a single-sided commitment to do something regardless of the actions of the other person. So God didn't say, hey, when you barter with me, make sure you keep that at your end of the bargain. We We can't bargain with God. You possess nothing he needs. Mom and dad, imagine if your child at the end of the meal all of a sudden decided that they had a piece of pizza crust left over. And they said, all right, dad, I got this soggy piece of pizza crust that was in my mouth. I know we got Oreos in the pantry. You give me those Oreos, and I'll give you this soggy piece of pizza crust. That, it's cute, but it's not convincing. There's no real negotiation happening. And so we need to be mindful of that. Negotiations with God. Here's the third thing. So number one, we have nothing God needs. Number two, because he needs nothing from us, negotiation is impossible. Number three, negotiations with God are simply a fool's overestimation of their own self. Now, I've got something he wants. I'm going to bring him to the table with my obedience or my I'll come back to church or I'll stop rebelling to God. Uh, Listen, with that being said, there are times that God is trying to get our attention, not so we negotiate with him, but so we vow to him, so we surrender to him. So so think about this. There are times uh, where where God desires for us to make a one-sided commitment. Again, God doesn't want us to come and say, now here's what I got and what do you got? And if we can trade these, then I'll, you know, maybe the terms are, are good to me. 
What an insult to the sovereign God of the universe that you think you can bend him to your will. It is a fool's overestimation of self. You have nothing to argue with or barter with God. So when God is bringing something into your heart and life, when God is bringing something painful and he is trying to get your heart, don't patronize him as though you have the ability to withhold something from him. If you don't give me this, because really what you're saying is if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. You realize I can take your pizza crust? Right? Lord, if, uh, if you'll do this thing, I'll give you my life. You realize God can take your life? He doesn't need anything from you. There, there is no bartering happening. And rather than coming to God and saying, Lord, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. What we ought to be saying is, Lord, I see you trying to get a hold of my heart. And I'm making a vow to you that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be faithful. I'm making a vow to you that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get. And, and listen, I've seen it. It's beautiful. God does this. But again, don't taint the process. It's beautiful when, God, when there's a wayward prodigal and he comes to himself, fain, uh, filling his belly with the husk, and he comes to himself and he says, I'm going home. But he didn't go home saying, all right, dad, now if I come home, here's what I get. And uh, I can do this for you if you do that for me. No, it was, I'm going home. And so when God brings something in your life to get your attention, I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I'm saying that very much does happen. I'm saying don't barter with him, surrender to him, vow to him and say, Lord, you want this for me? You're trying to get a hold of my heart. I've been running from you and you brought this circumstance. Don't attach. I'll do it if. Say, Lord, I see what you're doing. And I surrender to that. That's a far cry from I've got this soggy piece of pizza crust that I'm going to keep. If you don't give this to me, you come here and you play by my rules. What an insult to, again, the sovereign God of the universe. Uh, You have no carrot that he would be interested in. You have no stick uh, to force him into your path. Uh, uh, You just have this ability to surrender back to God, to make a vow to him. And there are plenty of vows that you ought to make. I I made a vow, teenagers, I made a vow that I would save myself from marriage. That's a vow I made to God. I didn't say, now, Lord, if you give me a a wife, uh, you know, who's five foot two and blonde, and if I can get married by 22, then I'll save myself for marriage. No, No, I said, God, regardless of how you work this out, this is my commitment to you. And listen, we ought to make those vows. They're scary, right? Because they come with weight. You're about to see that, right? He already told us. It's better to vow, it's, it's, not, it, it's better to not vow than to vow a vow and not pay. That's, I think, the next verse. But he does tell us here that if you're going to make a vow, defer not to pay it. You ought to make a vow to give him your life and to serve him faithfully. Not in a bartering sense, like, all right, Lord, if you'll make me rich, I'll serve you. You know, the only time that ever really happens in the Bible is uh, Satan. That if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. That's what he said to Jesus. Did that work? No, Satan has nothing to barter with, nor do we. And he even had the kingdoms of the world. We just got a soggy piece of pizza crust to offer him. We ought to be making vows, not bartering. We ought to surrender to him. We just had our parents come up here, right, for, uh, uh, for uh, what was that Sunday? Thank you, baby dedication, right? What is that? That's a vow. Hey, defer not to pay it. You commit to God to raise your children for Jesus. Do not not pay that. Because... He, he's austere, right? That word austere is a, is, a, is a clerical term. It's perfect, meticulous records kept. So God knows what you vowed, and then he knows that you're not obeying or, or, or living out that vow to him. So again, look at verse number four, and we'll jump into verse number five. He says, when thou vowest to vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. So again, we're back to the previous thought. God is against hollow words. 
God is against this flippant, foolish, negotiating, unengaged, non-deliberate, not walking circumspectly uh, idea. Uh, But again, vowing a vow is not a bad thing. There's times where we ought to vow. Vows keep us accountable. Vows determine a direction. Vows ought to hold weight over us, right? If I vowed that I was going to be faithful in my giving, that means I got to be faithful in my giving. If I vowed to give so much money to missions, I've got to do that. Some of us don't like that commitment, and that's, that's, that's not great. Vows are a biblical thing, but you see here, it's, it's better to not vow than to vow, vow, and not pay. Let's keep reading on the same topic. He says in verse 6, Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. So don't get yourself in trouble with your mouth. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. I, I, it was an accident. I didn't mean to make that vow. Wherefore, should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the works of thy hand? This is, this is a, a pungent reality in our life, right? He says, don't make a vow and then don't pay it. And then when you don't pay it, you come to the Lord and you're like, oh, I mean, like, I, did I make that vow? Did I, I really, I don't remember. I mean, I don't think I made that vow. I don't think I really made that commitment. That's what he's saying here. Say not before the angel that it was an error. Like I didn't, I, I mean, I, I know I brought it, got up here and got a Bible for my kid and, and I was gonna raise him for Jesus. But like, yeah, I'm like, you guys didn't really, I mean, I was up there for the Bible, right? He says, don't, don't let your mouth, uh, don't let, uh, suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Don't cause your mouth to allow you to sin against God by adding insult to injury, right? You already lied to God once in saying you would do it. And now that you're not doing it, you're going to lie about, I didn't even make that vow. I don't recall telling the Lord I would tithe. I don't, I don't, I don't remember that. No, don't, don't, don't add insult to injury. You already lied to him in not keeping the vow. And now you're going to say, oh, I didn't make that vow. No, again, God's austere. He's got perfect records. Look at verse number seven. Now we're coming back to this dreams illustration. For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also diverse vanities. There's all kinds of empty, meaningless, incoherent things that happen in dreams, right? In the multitude, the more dreams you have, many words there are, also diverse vanities, but fear thou the Lord. So he's equating this lack of conscious presence in your dreams and your lack of conscious presence in your words. So here's here's what a dream is. A dream has no consequences, You can jump off the Empire State Building in a dream, okay? You can walk up to the person you dislike the most and slap them in your dream, and there's no consequences. You can't be held accountable for that. That's what the Bible says our words should not be. He says in many words there are multiple, diverse vanities. Just like in dreams, there's a bunch of things that happen that don't matter. A lot of times in our words, we think there's a bunch of things we said, and we offered lip service, and we told Jesus we'd do this. And I can't be held accountable for that. It was a dream. No, it is better to not vow than to vow vow and not pay. And then he tells us to fear God. Fear thou the Lord. It's important that we understand that God has, he hears everything. We already saw that verse in Psalm, uh, that God, every word we speak, he's taking record with. And so when we come into the presence of God, we're going to make a commitment to him. Lord, I'm going to try to walk for you today, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. This isn't some inconsequential dream that your brain just automatically fabricates. No, conscious, deliberate, walking circumspectly, uh, keeping eye on where you step is what the author is going after. And so can we just, before we continue on, we're going to jump in now into, there's a a, a verse number eight, and then verse number nine is where we start getting into a man's relationship with money. But can we just take a pause and examine our own relationships with the Lord. We, and again, it's not, it's not telling us to walk circumspectly or to uh, keep thy foot when you come into just the church. It's talking about when we come into the presence of God. 
Are the things we just saw Solomon come after, are those things that are present in our prayer time? And if they are, we need to work on that. It ought not be this incoherent babbling of our brain and our mouth while we are not actively consciously engaged. There is there's accountability for the things we say to God. There's accountability for the things that we vow to God. There's no accountability for your dreams, but there is accountability for the vows you make before the Lord. Now, let's jump in. Uh, verse number eight. He says, If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent uh, perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth it. And there is, uh, there be rather, there be higher than they. And so what he says is, as you look out on this planet, and this is a great verse for our present day, as you look out on this planet and you see justice being trampled, you see everybody around you living immorally and incorrectly, judgments being perverted, there's no justice. He says, hey, listen, don't marvel or be, be scared of it. There is someone higher than the highest who regardeth it. There be, uh, there be higher than they. And thank, thank God for that truth. That we, we do live in a fallen world, but that fallen world will come before the Lord at some point. In fact, if you will, jump over with me to Psalm chapter 33, verse number 13. There's a great uh, uh, principle found over in this passage. I want to kind of tie to that. The idea, again, is when you look out and you see brokenness and inequity and unfairness and justice and judgment being trampled, hey, there's someone higher than the highest person in that situation, and he takes notice and regards it. Psalm 33, verse 13 says, The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike, he considereth all their works. Notice what he says in verse 16. There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. So it doesn't matter. The king can insulate himself with armies of people, but he can't stop the judgment of God. A mighty man is not delivered by his much strength from God. So back to Ephesians chapter number 5. Now, moreover is the first word of verse number 9. When you get back there, you'll see that. Moreover. Now, when you see the word moreover, I mean... Just think logically through it more on top of what I already say. So moreover, on top of the fact that God's going to repay the wicked, uh, moreover, there's another thought that Solomon wants to bring us uh, to. He says, moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. Now he's going to introduce this idea that God provides equitably for all people. God has put the earth in our care, and he has put the earth in our access to have dominion over it, to utilize it, to grow food, and so forth. Um, and here's where we're going to start beginning our transition into the last part of the chapter, where he's going to show us man's appropriate and inappropriate relationship with money. And he starts out by simply saying, hey, every good thing you've got, God provided for you. Uh, the gold, the silver, all of those things came out of the ground that God put in the ground for you to have. Um, but the great and repeated tragedy that we're going to come into uh, in the, the coming verses is that when God is giving us things, oftentimes our heart falls in love with those things, and that's where things start to go off the rails. But it's not quite there yet. In verse number nine, it just simply says, God provides for the king and he provides for the pauper. Uh, he's, he just, he, that's what he does. Look at verse number 10. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Nor he that loveth abundance, he's not going to be satisfied with increase. This is also vanity. He says, it's empty, it's not, you're never going to change this reality. If someone is in love with what God has given them through the earth, through his own provision, through his own goodness, and they fall in love with silver, silver will not make them happy. 
abundance. I want more of. And I love that he did that because, right, somebody in here might think, well, I don't love silver. I love, you know, paper money. No, no, no. Abundance of anything. He, he covers the entire spectrum of things by this one word abundance. He that loveth abundance will not be satisfied with increase. And those who fall in love with stuff will never be satisfied with stuff. It's hopeless to change that. We are to seek his face and not his hand. Now, the question is posed, why won't riches satisfy men? If you love it, it should satisfy you, right? Look at verse number 11. When goods increased, they are increased that eat them. Think about that. Oh, that's a harsh reality we are all aware of. More money, more bills. I got a bonus. I'm going to use it for this. And oftentimes it doesn't make it to this. They got eaten by that. But I love these things. But they're fleeting. They make themselves wings and fly away toward heaven. In fact, I really, really love the next part of verse number 11. So it says, when goods increase, they are increased that eat them. What good is there to the owner thereof? So what's the benefit of even having these things? Saving, except there's one benefit to the, the, the person who has these things. Saving the beholding of them with their eyes. Oh, oh, it hurts. Okay. We get a tax refund. Woo! I love it. I'm so satisfied with it. I see it with my eyes. But it never makes it to my hands or my table. I had this extra money, and then, man, the car broke down, and then the kids needed shoes, and, and all I got to do, the only thing, he says there's no benefit, saving the beholding of them with their eyes. Oftentimes when it comes to this idea of falling in love with money, you get the money, and all you get to do is look at it. If you have barns full of stuff, cool, there it is. And oftentimes, as he says in the first part of this verse, when, when goods are increased, they are increased that eat them as well. This is the most dissatisfying thing about money. It's just not defensible. You can't keep it. You can make all of your plans about, okay, if I you know, do this and I do this, and I'm for budgeting, I think, it's, I think it's a good thing, I think it's good stewardship. But oftentimes, when our heart is so attached to this, God's going to be intentional about making sure that it's just you didn't get to do what you thought you were going to do with it uh, because you love it, and that's just not how this is going to work. Um, you, you, can, you can have these things that God gives you through the goodness and the fullness of the earth, but you're not supposed to love them or to chase them. And what a terrible place to, to attach an identity, something that you don't even get to have. It, you, you look at it, and then something else eats it, and it's gone. Um, and, and we can all identify with that, right? We had this, and then it was gone. But notice what verse number 12 says. This is important. He says, The sleep of a laboring man is sweet. Whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. That's a deep truth. Here's what he says. A man who works hard, whether he's rich or not, he sleeps well, right? Uh, Whether he has little or much, if he worked hard, he's going to sleep well. Now, let me just say this. One of the best things that you can do for your mental health and physical health is do hard things. You'll sleep much better. Uh, That's not what this verse is saying, but that is certainly a truth to draw from this. But notice the contrast here. He says, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. That word suffer means allow. So it's not even that he has so much money that like he just can't sleep. It's that having so much money will not allow him to sleep. He is so consumed about keeping and protecting and gaining more and having more and you know all the things that want to eat it, he wants to uh, push them off and it literally robs him of his sleep. That's a painful reality. Verse number 13. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun. 
So he's, there's a, a, namely, he says there's a painful reality that I've witnessed. Riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. Listen, riches and the things gathered, the money and the stuff, kept not for the benefit of their family, which God is all for. Used not for the kingdom of heaven, which God is all for. But these things are kept and they're hoarded and they're loved and they're looked upon and they're kept not for the benefit of this man or the advancement of this man or the investment of this man, but they're kept to his own hurt. And again, that's, that's, he's not anti-having, you know, being successful or building. You're going to see that. He, he ends a lot of the chapters the same way. Hey, go ahead and enjoy. Instead of hoarding it up, go ahead and enjoy what God has given you. He's going to end the same chapter or this chapter in very much the same way. But notice the, the end of poor relationships with money. Look at verse 14. But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. When a man loves riches and seeks to store them up instead of using them for God or his family, which again, using for your family, providing for your own, is using it for God. I'm 100% convinced of that reality. But this idea, if you live for this money and live for the acclimation or the accumulation rather of things, what happens is the first generation, it's to their hurt. By the time you get to the second generation, there's nothing left. Look what it says. But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. Again, I personally think that Solomon is thinking of himself again. Solomon had all this stuff, and then Rehoboam loses the whole kingdom. He's got nothing in his hand. Most wealthy man in Israel, now a fugitive, losing the entire kingdom. Listen, Solomon doesn't back off this thought. In fact, he's going to push further into it in verse 15. It says, As he came forth of his mother's womb... Naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor which he may carry away in his hand. You know, that's a big truth, a truth that Job says the exact same thing. You came in with no wealth, and you will die with no wealth. You will carry nothing into the next life. But again, contrast that with the words of Jesus, that even a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple shall in no wise lose its reward. You can have eternal treasures if you lay them up in in heaven where moth and rust does not corrupt and thieves don't break through and steal. So listen, you come in with nothing, you'll leave with nothing, so then why hoard it to your own destruction? Look at verse 16. And this also is a sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. In fact, in chapter 12, you're going to see that we came in with no teeth, we're going to go out with no teeth, right? We came in with no hair, we're going to go out with no hair. As you came, you're going to go. You came in poor and naked, you're going to go out poor and naked. You don't get to take any of it with you. Verse 16, and this also is a sore travail that, is a, that in all points as he came in, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? That's what he calls our riches. Wind. You can't hold it. There's no protecting it. You increase money, those that eat it are increased as well. So why do it? Why even make money if it can't be kept? Solomon's sick soul has no answer for us. He simply just says, then why is there a profit? Why is there any benefit to earning or working? While Solomon doesn't have a great answer for us here in Ecclesiastes, the New Testament does. And we've already talked a little bit about that. Money is a resource that you can use to do the will of God with. Uh, you can accomplish incredible things. Like I said, providing for your, your family, uh, caring for your elderly family, helping ch- your children when they get older, uh, giving to the work of the gospel, sending missionaries. You can engage your finances in spiritual things. But Solomon's like, yeah, but I can't keep any of it. 
Yeah, you're missing the whole point. Yeah, but I don't get to take any of it with me. Yeah, but you're missing the whole point. It's a resource. It's not your savior. It's a resource. It's not what you get to carry with you into heaven. He's missing the point. Uh, Notice the picture that Solomon paints in verse 17. All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. So this is the picture that he's painting of this man who the earth provides for and he falls in love with it, but he's not satisfied with it because as he increases it, there are increase that destroy it and he can't keep it to any benefit, but it's keeping it to his hurt. And he gets to the end of this picture or the end of this chapter and he paints this picture of this man sitting alone, eating in darkness, sick and angry because he fell in love with stuff, right? And we've seen that throughout this book. We'll see it again even. Verse number 18 Behold that which I have seen. It is good and comely. And that word means beautiful. For one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God hath given him, for it is his portion. So instead of being so tied to hoarding your riches and heaping them up for your own destruction, Solomon says, enjoy them. Provide for your family. Uh, enjoy the, the, the provision that God has given to you. Allow those blessings to flow into your life and through your life to other people. Don't chase them or fall in love with them because silver will not satisfy and abundance certainly won't either. Use them, employ them, engage them while you're living. Look at verse 19. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, he hath given him the power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Church family, again, I advocate for enjoying the things God has provided for you. I think you need to storehouse. I think you need to be wise and save for retirement. I think that you need to uh, utilize your retirement for Jesus, right? If, if you say, I'm on a fixed income, I can't live in California for the rest of my life, fine. Go to South America and help a missionary. Use those years for Jesus. At no point does God say, hey, here's your life. You can do whatever you want. You no longer have use in my, in my kingdom. Never, never, any time does he ever say that. But he does talk about enjoying those things. And so I'm all for taking a longer vacation and making memories and enjoying time with your family and and using the things that God has given you. There is no shame whatsoever. Travel the world and serve Jesus. That's Again, that's the best Solomon can give us. Um, It's not the best it gets. We've already talked about that. Look at verse number 20, though, as he ends. He says, For he shall not much remember the days of his life. Now, this is in contrast to the sick, wrathful man eating in the dark with all of his love for riches. The man who partakes in the goodness of God and engages his life, he says, hey, there's not a remembrance, a bitter remembrance of life. And, oh, it wasn't fair. And, I, you know, I, these people did me wrong. He's not, he's not fighting to keep this stuff. He's not going to much remember the days of his life with this sickness. But notice what he says. Because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. So a very contrasting picture here. you got this old man sitting by himself, sick and angry, and he's got all his stuff. Now, again... My guess, the person it reminds me of the most, is Solomon, right? He's got all this stuff, but he's sick and he's angry. And then he says, yeah, but over here, the person who, who doesn't live for those things to hoard them up, he's not going to look back on life with all this bitterness and remembering how hard it was. He's going to enjoy the things that God gave him, and he's going to walk forward in that. And so really, as we close, we'll go to prayer in just a second. The two real big takeaways that I just want to remind us of before we pray is, number one, keep your foot and let your words be few. Make sure that your vows are made from an honest heart that you intend to keep them. And when you break them and there's an infraction, repent, make it right, and begin to carry that that responsibility forward again. And then number two, he that loveth abundance shall not be satisfied with it. That's our second big takeaway. Let's pray.